Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. I'm Sonia Senek, the host of Connected Intelligence and the executive director at Creative Destruction Lab and the CDL Rapid Screening Consortium, known as CDL RSC. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Professor Janice Stein, the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Janice, a critical player in the CDL RSC leadership team, uh, she led all of our government engagement and our strategic thinking around scaling around Canada with the project. Um, and this is one of, as you'll learn, many, many projects she's worked on in her career. So excited to listen to her. We talked about trust. We talked about team building. Excited. Okay, so please enjoy Janice Stein. You were part of the class at Yale that was the first class that had a master's degree Um, master's degree class with women in it. So you're one of five or six women. And I thought we'd rewind the tape back and ask you sort of what was that experience like? And my question is how much has policy innovated since then? There's actually no words to describe what that experience was like. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a minute or two to try to create the atmosphere for all of you and you will not believe it. Um, There were no, women could not live on their own, even though they were graduate students, because we were not competent to look after ourselves. So they had to find living quarters. And the only place they could find for women was on the outskirts of the campus behind a gas station, (laughs) where the few women who were admitted to graduate school were housed together. And that was deliberate we would not be a distraction to the male graduate students that were in the university that's where I started from now that is another world I hope to everybody in this room absolutely and since then to now um, I'm sure you've seen tremendous innovations tremendous advances how different is it now so it's unimaginable how different the world is today um, from when I started my career. And what are the big differences? First of all, the doors are open to women in virtually any field. That doesn't mean that they're not a whole series of subtle issues that we all deal with, that I still deal with at this time, but they're the kind of open barriers that existed um, are not there anymore. And I think the second big change, and you put your finger on it, Sonia, is generally um, we value diversity in our societies more and more and more. We're never really good enough, frankly. And what's so apparent is that the more diverse the perspectives that there are in the room, the more diverse viewpoints, the more diverse experience the better the result that the team is able to produce. Well, that's just um, an almost unimaginable change from the world uh, that I had to navigate all these years. So it's just wonderful to watch. And so you're the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at U of T. I'm curious to know, how did you see that opportunity to establish a new school at the university? 
Um, and this new stage in your career in general, I mean, did you imagine that years before develop the idea in a, in a team? How did that happen? I never had a plan. <laughs> I, I teach decision-making and strategy and I've never had a plan. And I've never really had a career plan, but I was open to alternative paths as they came along. So I've been, I've been at the University of Toronto for 40 years now, and I probably had five different careers, even though the University of Toronto paid my salary the whole time, because I, I've always been interested in things I don't know much about. Um, because frankly, I get bored easily. I'm a disruptive person when I'm bored. I talk at meetings. A smartphone was a great gift because instead of disrupting at the meeting, I could play with my phone. Uh, but so once I understand the problem, I'm not that interested in anymore and I want to move on and do something else. And I, the monk school started as a tiny center. That's all it was. Uh, but it grew and it grew because people gravitated toward a place in the university, um, which was very late on process, which is a polite way of saying there were almost no rules. Um, we didn't learn them, so we didn't know we were breaking them. And it pulled in like-minded people who wanted to try stuff. And that's really how the school grew. And probably my favorite leadership conversation was with one of our provosts who's very smart. And he, uh, he invited me to lunch one day. And he said to me, Janice, uh, I see what you're doing. So I thought, oh my God, you know, he's going to tell me about every process violation that I've committed and, or my colleagues or the people that I had pulled together. And he said, you know, if the whole university behaved like you, it would be chaos here. But if nobody behaved like you, we wouldn't do anything new. And so we need, we need eight or nine like you sprinkled around just to, keep, to have built in enough disruption into the system. And so I, I, first of all, I thought, oh, wow, how smart. Because he said to me, keep on going. It wasn't about crushing. It was about keep on going. Um, and that's what created the school. When he said, keep on going, I said, fine, then let's institutionalize this and create a school. And the school's still like that. Um, there's the DNA is really, really good in there. So even though you said you didn't have a plan, did you have any themes or visions, you know, for yourself? It's very interesting that we were just talking about that uh, yesterday because there's a new director, um, which I'm just delighted to see. Uh, you know, two generations at least, if not more, younger than I am, which is phenomenal. There's nothing better than to get to know young people and then watch with pride what they do. And so we talked about that, what's the vision? And so he asked me that same question, Sonia, what's the vision? And my answer was to enable great people to do great work. So I wasn't worried whether which field you were in or what background you had, but if, if you had something that you just, you were gonna try this no matter what, 
And either you're going to try it, enable with the best possible support and mentors um, and in a safe environment, or you are going to try it somewhere and likely, more than likely self-destruct. That's what it was about. You teach a course at the Monk School on decision-making and strategy. And you've said your goal is to shake up your students and upend the way they think about decision-making. Yeah. Why? Well, it's actually, I think it's, you know, everyone loves their own work, right? And so I think mine is the most fascinating field of research. But um, we have lived for easily 400 years in the Western world with a belief that we understood how decisions got made. And it was fundamentally through reason. And we reasoned very carefully. And if we followed the right logic chain, we would arrive at the right decision. Well, there's just no evidence for that whatsoever. None. And the last, nothing. It's really astounding. And the last 30 years have produced, uh, you know, in neuroscience and cognitive science and cognitive psychology, produced this avalanche of evidence that we just don't do this. So we, a colleague and I started this course 10 years ago, and he came out of a microeconomic background with a strong commitment to rational choice. And I was on the other side. We've taught together now for 10 years. And it's been fascinating for us, the two of us, to watch how the other one moves. Mm-hmm. But it's also great for the students because they think they, they come in thinking, well, we know how to do this. And then they hear <laughs> all this evidence and they, oh my God, we don't know. We don't understand. And they watch that this crafting between the two of us as we try to give people both a better understanding and a better set of tools. So when you respond with your emotions, for example, as we do 99.9% of the time, (laughs) we understand why we're doing it and we have better control and better understanding and the result is better. So speaking of emotions and uh, working relationships, I'm curious to know, according to you, what do you feel is the single most important aspect of a well-functioning working relationship or well-functioning team? So first of all, without a well-functioning team, you do nothing. Nobody really, I mean, you do, you know, there's the old classical scholar who sat at home in her library and wrote great books, and that still goes on. But to actually build something, to do something, you have to build a great team. Um, And that's hard because a great team has to have on it people who are dramatically different from me. Otherwise, we're going to fail. And I, so I look for people who are as different from me as I can. That's the first thing. And then I have to bite my tongue and bite my tongue and restrain myself and be patient because these people do things differently and think differently from me and follow process and tell me about rules, and protect me from making really stupid mistakes. Um, but that's been a lifelong struggle for me to be, to be patient. Um, but the other, the, that's, so that's one ingredient of a great team to have people who are so different. The second ingredient of a great team is to trust the people that you work with. 
by which I mean, you know, I've worked with Sonia for the last year and a half. I, Sonia and I will say, well, we're going to do something. And I put down the phone. I never think about it again. I know she's going to do it. I don't check. <laughs> she doesn't check on me. We know. And if there's an obstacle that either of us run into, we'll speak to each other. But other than that, that trust is what I call the glue, the stickiness in any great organization. And people don't value that and understand that enough. You know, during the pandemic, when hospital leaders were just under tremendous pressure, tremendous, and all the healthcare workers were, we were talking about how they could continue at this pace of intensity, which has been so demanding. And the core value is that they know they can turn to a colleague and say, will you do this? And the colleague says, yes, and they move right along. They never look back. They never check. Without that, it's all formality, frankly. And so going from formality, the formality of a team to a trusting, well-functioning team, how do you recommend to our team and to anyone listening, how would you cultivate that? How do you cultivate a trusting working environment and working relationships? I think, I think there are two things that are really, really important. And let me start. I think it matters where you start. So I'm sure some of you know that there's software in the university called Turnitin. You ever heard of that? Okay. So Turnitin is software that the university recommends to every faculty member that they use. And they, the software, you feed your students paper through the program. And the program will identify whether parts of it are plagiarized or not. And the university recommends every faculty member use it. I absolutely refuse. It's become an issue that I refuse, but I will not do it. And so it's been pretty testy, the conversations about this. And so the question is why, why won't I do it? Because if I say to a group of students, we're gonna use Turnitin, I am communicating the expectation that they're not trustworthy and that given the opportunity, they'll cheat. If you start that way, that's where you're going to be. Yeah. So I start with, here are the rules. Yeah, this is what plagiarism is. I'm assuming, I'm trusting that none of you will do this. And I start from a model where I trust people until I'm proven wrong. And sometimes I am, but I would rather <laughs> be disappointed in one then not trust everybody. And that's what we build on, that there's an assumption. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we're not going to make mistakes and big mistakes along the way. But the trust is that when those mistakes happen, people will tell each other, we'll pull together as a team to fix them, we'll learn from them. Um, and the assumption is that we are all acting with integrity and good faith. So it, it's creating a culture. Yep. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about there, Sonia. Yeah. I'm just, when you say starting from that place of trust, you communicate right out the gate that there's trust yeah. there and, and people sounds like people come and meet you and match you with that. Yeah. And you know, there's again, so much good evidence that when you set expectations, if, and people respond to the expectations. So one of the real problems we have for, with racial minorities um, in schools is that teachers set lower expectations 
um, for students that way and students meet the lower expectations. If you set high expectations and the highest of all to me is trust, um, people will meet that trust overwhelmingly. Um, so in a previous interview you've done, uh, somebody asked you, what would you want your autobiography to be called? And you said, tried her best. <laughs> so why? Everybody fails. Everybody, including me, fails. And we have the hardest thing sometimes is to be accepting of our own failures, not other people's, but our own. And I've struggled with that at different stages in my life. So one of the comforting things is, I did, I really did try my best. Um, I didn't get it right. I failed. There's, you know, I may have, um, not only are there consequences for me when I fail, but there are consequences for other people. But part of being okay with failure is being okay with your own and being kind enough to yourself when that happens that you look back, you say, okay, I should have taken the fork, this fork in the road. I didn't. Um, I'll do it differently next time. But being able then to move on and not internalize that sense of failure. So I think saying to yourself, trying your breast um, is a really good thing to say. And then there's one more. I broke all the stupid rules. <laughs> <laughs> That's the subheader. Okay, uh, last question, which is just a little bit focused on with the theme of CDL RSC. Uh, we've learned from you that some of the most interesting things you'll do in your life and career happen when you step off to the side and explore other things. Right. You talked about going into intentionally going into areas you know less about right. and trying something totally new. That's a large part of what a lot of our team members at CDL RSC have done, right? No, 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 none of us have ever really worked on, on a, a project like this before. Um, so you've gone through many challenges in your career. How do you think about that phrase now of stepping off to the side and trying something new? I'm still doing it, right? I'm still doing it, Sonia. And how did I get involved with CDLRSC? I met Ajay in an elevator. <laughs> we started the talk. Um, we each were interested in what the other one was saying. I didn't know a lot about what he was saying. He didn't know a lot about what I was saying. And we just struck up a conversation. And then when this got going, what did I know <laughs> about antigen screening? Zero, zero. We had two people on our team of six who really knew something about it. The rest of us were learning at a rapid pace. But what was great about the leadership team, and that got reflected in the team all the way right across the whole thing, we really had a diverse set of skills. Everybody brought something to the table there that nobody else had. And there was respect right across that team. There's trust right across that team. And I would say it's been, I don't know how you feel, Sonia, it's been a really wonderful experience working on this project. Aside from the uh, accomplishments that the project achieved, aside from the contribution it made, just the quality of the team and the commitment to a shared cause and the great relationships that developed and the friendships that developed have been absolutely extraordinary. So I'm so glad when I got asked to do something I knew nothing about. <laughs> that I took the chance. It's been incredibly enriching. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. 
we're joined by our host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Joan D'Angelo, Amar Kaur, and me, Elizabeth Chim. Do you want to say, do you want to say hi? Hi. Okay. <laughs> Joanne D'Angelo. Hey. And Amar Kaur. It sounds like I'm doing these haze myself. Hello, Amar. <laughs> yeah. Hi there. Janice. Janice Stein, amazing guest. 100%. And you said one thing in her intro, Sonia, which was that she gives a very clear and compelling vision of the future. And I was listening to her whole thing. And what I love is that every time she goes, I didn't plan, or like, I didn't have this plan, or like, I didn't have a career path. And yet, whatever she speaks on, you've you think that like she spent her whole career just thinking about that thing because she has such a deep knowledge in it. Yeah, everything feels intentional, but it's it seems like it's by happenstance and now she's all of a sudden ex- an expert on the thing she stumbled into. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> I think one of the most inspiring parts from her chat was just her stories about what it was like as a woman in academia way back then. I'm not going to assume which year it was, but for her to be one of the first female graduate students and what she went through, I think is just kind of crazy because when I went to university, I remember sitting in a sea of ponytails. There were tons of women in my class (laughs) and I just, it just felt so normal. And to understand how that's not what it's like for a lot of women who paved the way to be in academia is just makes me very grateful yeah her comment about the gas station is something I think about a lot the lodging yeah yeah the lodging the only place we could get you is on the other side of the gas station near the university so you're not distracting anyone right (laughs) quite a strategy one of the awards that she was given was pretty interesting I looked it up the honorary foreign member of academy arts and science what does it what does it mean? So is there an acronym? Uh, I don't see an acronym, but it's it was founded like ages ago, 1780, by John Adams and Hancock. I think we've heard of those guys before. Yeah. This is a signature uh, guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And some of the members include Albert Einstein, Henry Kissinger, and the first uh, female woman elected was an astronomer. I can't say the word. Astronomer. Thank you. Maria Mitchell. Uh, And she was elected in 1848. And Janice Stein. And Janice Stein. That is amazing. Yeah. Okay. What does it recognize though? So it's this collection of impressive people. Okay. Well, it's people who discover and advance knowledge and those who apply knowledge to problems of society. Absolutely. Janice belongs in that crew. Yeah. So I have a question for all of you. Um, so Sonia, you brought up that Janice's autobiography was going to be called Tried Her Best. What would your autobiography be called? That's such a great question. Okay, I can go first. Go, you need to go first. It's more of a joke title. So my autobiography would be called Small Hands, Big Head, The Elizabeth Chim Story. <laughs> Why? Okay, it's a little bit of a joke, but it's just, I've always been told, like, when I was growing up, that I just, like, have these little hands that just don't seem to do much, but I have this big head and all these ideas. What are you going to do with your life? Use a keyboard, a small (laughs) one. 
I've just adapted all of my household objects to be very tiny. Miniature. That's amazing. Uh, Amar? Oh, I, I, like, I don't know what the title would be, but I want it, I would want it to be something related to like, always behind the lens or like mm. always behind the camera. Cause I just feel like photography has been such a huge part of my life um, in every aspect. Like I try to bring it into every aspect. So I don't have a punchy title for it, but it would, cause photography has always allowed me to have a second perspective on anything that I do. So from, from that angle, that's why. So much depth and you just made an angle pun. And well I made done. an angle pun and you made a depth of field pun right there. So we're just on a roll over here. <laughs> didn't even realize. I didn't actually know that. That made me sound like I very much knew photography. Um, (laughs) Joanne. Yeah, and I'll end that role. Um, Is that the title? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Again, I I wouldn't know what the title is, but it would be cheesy. Scooting along. Yeah. No. Joanne rides scooters. That's the background there. Scooting for life. I think for me, it'd be Scootin more like- Scooting the boot. Um, <laughs> okay, Sonia, I guess you're, there's a number of chapters in this book, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, several. Um, it's your life story. Yeah. I think, I think for me, it would be about being in the moment about, yeah, I don't know how, it, it, I, can't, I can't get away with not making this sound like cheese, but- it's just, it's, it would be more about in, in being in the moment. Mm. Like it's okay to be on your own and, and take the moment to enjoy stuff. Mm. I don't know where I'm going with that. Yeah, you're, you're it's an extended it. title. That's the extended, <laughs> that's the director's cut that we just got there. I don't know mine. I don't know mine. Right? It's, it's uh, stalling this whole time. Okay, I've been stalling, I think, <laughs> it is, it, but I think it's something to the effect of to be continued. Because I feel like any day that I, if I were to ever issue that story, something else would have evolved. You shape environments, but the environment also shapes you. And I feel like I wouldn't be able to ever feel like I said it all or, or captured, you know, the essence of everything that were to happen. I feel like that's just a constantly evolving story.